0: and welcome to a very special episode of Spotlight. This, our fourth supplemental, we'll be taking in an exclusive interview with Robert Salin, who was the producer of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, some 35 years ago this year. Um, joined as usual by my co-host Matthew Brothers. Hello. And Mr. Liam Dempsey. Hello. Uh, Liam, we'll give you a little bit of background on how this interview just
1: came about before we launch right in. The man who organised it for us has been on the show before, Mr David Chumble. Um, he joined us for our first ever Spotlight Supplemental yeah, back over year, David. talking about the morality of Trek. And he, he will return to the show at some point. And... He has arranged this interview for us uh, very, very kindly. Um, so, huge thanks to David. Uh, we really appreciate it. Bob was a fantastic
0: guest. It was a really fun interview. Um, he's got some great stories. I mean, we cover a lot of ground in the upcoming interview. You know, Bob's had a very storied career, which we learn about, mm-hmm. and he's got some fantastic
2: um, anecdotes to he's share. He's had, like, a, a, a wonderful time in the film industry of these years, and his experience ranges from so many roles right from when he started right up to present day yeah he's he's still working i mean you will find it hard
1: to believe when you're listening to this interview uh but this is an 85 year old man and he's one of the most vibrant people i've ever heard in my life um an absolute joy to talk to and yeah we don't worry guys we talk about plenty about star trek but there's so much else to talk about as well. Um, so, so whether you're into Star Trek or not, you'll find something to enjoy here. Fantastic. Okay, so without further ado, Mr. Robert Salen. Thanks so much for doing this, Robert.
3: No, oh, my pleasure. It'll be great fun. I hope it, uh, I can provide you with something that's useful. Bob Salen? Oh, yes. that's <laughs> So
1: what, what is check? is how to pronounce your second name? Salen. Okay, okay. I think was was that you, yeah, right? I, I win five pounds. <laughs> and, um, do you prefer Robert or Bob or ah. Bob? Okay, great, perfect. Let's,
3: let's keep let's keep it friendly and informal.
1: Brilliant, fine, fine, absolutely fine by us. So basically, the idea of the uh, show, um, Bob, is that all three of us, um, when we started this, uh, were we're not Trekkies or anything like that. We're approaching the show. Uh, from a kind of, you know, non-fan perspective. And kind, kinda of, think it's a similar experience for you, isn't it, uh, with your approach to Star Trek when you first came on board?
3: A- absolutely. Uh, I was uh, not only not a Star Trek fan, I was f- almost oblivious of it. Uh, I-, I simply, uh, you know, it was out there. I knew about it, uh, but I had no emotional investment in it and uh, really didn't understand... Uh, the uh, philosophy behind it. I didn't understand the passion with which uh, many people uh, embraced it. Um, So all that was uh, quite a learning curve for me.
1: Yeah, when you say about not understanding the philosophy about it, obviously the philosophy of the show comes from the creator Gene uh, Roddenberry, which (laughs) is kind of very progressive optimistic vision of the future when you say you didn't understand do you say you didn't know what it was or do you mean as in you didn't quite get what he was trying to say with that
3: uh, i think it was uh, mostly the former uh, I, I simply just you know it was one of those things oh i understand it's it's successful uh, isn't that interesting uh, but i didn't probe i didn't probe it <clears throat> and i didn't embrace it I simply, you know, it just I guess I just fundamentally didn't
2: care. See, <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't first in line for the motion picture. Absolutely
3: not. Absolutely not.
2: <laughs> I, I guess, did... I guess back then as well, fan communities weren't as large, or you know, without the internet as well. These days, you get massive communities, and back then, I'm sure there was one for something as old as Star Trek, because even it was approaching about 15 years, wasn't it? Around mm. around the That's... early 80s. So, but even then, yeah, I guess you're a bit separate from it.
3: Uh, yeah, I think, I think there was a large fan base even then. Uh, I, well, I just don't believe that we had the uh, exposure. We didn't have the media uh, that you have today. And so I think uh, there were certainly a, the enthusiasts and in substantial numbers, as I learned uh, when I was doing the film. Uh, but um, I, I really think it's a function of social media and the fact that the franchise, uh, thanks to, I believe, Star Trek II, uh, it really became energized. Uh, I think it became, if, if Star Trek II had failed, I think you would have seen a big drop off in the fan base. Uh, that was, that's just my, my perception, and I think the fact that we, we did the job that we did, and particularly since the first one, while financially successful, uh, really um, you know, was a source of some dissatisfaction to the fan base, as I understand it. Uh, so, I think that number two put everything back on track and uh, gave it a booster shot.
0: Yeah, I find, I find that people uh, who made Star Trek motion picture felt that they were going for the purest form of Star Trek, very big about the themes and that kind of thing, but they lost the heart of it, which I feel that Star Trek Two reintroduces. So, it not just pleased the average moviegoer, but also the fan base were appeased and won back over.
3: Uh, that's very perceptive, and it's completely accurate. Uh, you know, from what I was able to gather about the production of Star Trek One, and I did a lot of research, um, you know, Gene Roddenberry, uh, you know, wanted to add a purity of vision. Uh, that v- purity of vision may not have been the most commercial thing in the world for a feature audience, for a film audience. It's one thing to have it on the small screen, it's another thing to go out wide and to go out to a paying public. The couple that with the fact that Robert Wise, who is certainly one of our finest directors, uh, I think was an inappropriate choice for that sort of film. We,
0: when we did uh, our episode of that one, we did feel that it, his kind of style of uh, large roadshow-type ep- epics was kind of a bit passe by the time 1979
3: rolled around. Uh, that, and the, yes, yes, and quite you know, honest, one thing to do Sound of Music, I don't know. It's another thing. Yeah, it's another thing to do something. And from what I've heard, and I hope this is not you uh, digging up dirt. From what I heard, they were in conflict from day one. A robbery uh, and wise. Uh, yes, uh, and from what I also was told, I, this was I was told this by members of the cast uh, that they 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 were in conflict about just about everything, uh, and they had uh, changes to the script were occurring not weekly, not daily, but hourly. Wow. Wow. So that you had multicolored pages, you know, flying off the the old mimeograph machine in those days, and uh, the actors saying, well, what do we do next? So there there was a lot of chaos.
0: Combine that with where they were complaining they didn't know what they were looking at particularly well, because a lot of the effects hadn't been visualized particularly whilst they were shooting, so you had the multiple rewrites combined with that. I can see how Correct. they were been
3: a bit. And the, the, yeah, and both both Roddenberry and Robert Wise were were simply not knowledgeable on visual effects, and um, so what they did is they threw money at it, and they hired a lot of people, who some of whom are, are now big names, but it was an era era of ex, of uh, experimentation. And uh, a lot of, you know, uh, machines were purchased, a lot of uh, time was spent floundering around. And from what I understand, there was a fair amount of, um, how should I say this, Um, fumes in the air uh, that, uh, that either clouded or enhanced what they were trying to do. The original budget for that film was around $24 million, if memory serves the actual uh, cost, I'm told, that they admit to, is about 46
1: Yeah, that's right, yeah.
3: And the, and the, the cost, the, the increase, was largely in visual effects. And uh, I was determined when I did my film that that was not going to happen, and it didn't.
1: Well, you were responsible for bringing ILM on board, were you not, Bob?
3: Yes. Uh, oh. Originally... Well, let's see. You know, as you know that you know that I come. From, I came to this as a director, not as a producer. Right. And uh, you know, I had my own commercial production company for uh, about eighteen years. I directed about, I don't know, somewhere in the area of two thousand commercials for clients worldwide. By the way, I spent a lot of time in London for clients there, and uh, shot a lot there. Um, and so, you know, when one does commercials. Uh, you're on the cutting edge of a lot of technology Mm. because commercials were then and are now so diverse. So you've got to, if you don't know, you find out very quickly if you're about to do a job because it'll affect your bottom line. Anyway, so I had unconsciously almost, uh, garnered this kind of background, a cinematic background that was uh, more expansive than perhaps the normal producer, per se, uh, and was able to bring some of that uh, to bear uh, in producing this. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, there was a director friend of mine. Uh, I don't want to mention his name, but he was pretty successful at the time. And uh, we we met one day, and I he asked me what I was doing, and I told him that I was going to produce Star Trek 2 And he looked at me and he says, "You're overqualified."
0: <laughs> 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 so,
3: so, I you know I didn't feel that way, but uh, I thought that was an interesting observation. Well, it certainly made
0: uh, you feel not as overawed by you know somebody else who may have been more familiar with Trek, would I've been you know a bit. More kind of like worried about taking on the task, but you approached it kind of methodically, and you could see where the cost cutting could be potentially made. Uh, but you know the eye on a quality product was always there.
3: Absolutely, uh, my my prime motivation was how great a story can I tell? That was the driving force behind everything, and everything else was instrumental in getting me to that point
2: and it really and should be the outlook with movies i think it's good to have it, that be the bottom line for somebody you know because i'm sure a lot of people think about other elements but that's a great way to they, go they, into something
3: well they do a lot of people think about it in terms of where do they get seated at the ca- at the uh, ca- at the cafeteria <laughs> at the studio you know <laughs> <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm afraid I'm a really old-fashioned guy. Uh, it's it probably came out of the morality of growing up during the Depression. But what I cared about most was how good a job could we do, and that was it. And I must say, it was a rude awakening for me uh, to be plunged into the center of the, the major studio system. Um, I think I, I I don't I don't mean to digress, but. Um, I was once asked, uh, what, what did you learn when you did Star Trek? And I said, well, what I learned was how to lie. <laughs> you know, that's, kind of, that's kind of a dark statement, and I'll give you an example. Uh, coming from where I did in life and how I was raised and then uh, having my own commercial production company where what you say, it binds you. And I felt perfectly comfortable. If I said it was going to cost X number of dollars to produce this and a little mini film, then that's what it would be. And if it weren't, we sat down and talked about it openly and honestly. When I prepared the budget, or I should say had the budget prepared for me at at Paramount, I looked at it and I analyzed it and I said, yep, we can do this. And uh, the powers that be said, uh, no, no, you have to take a million dollars out of it. And I went back to the studio production manager with whom I had worked on another feature that I had directed uh, many years ago. And I said, Marvin, this is the honest budget. I said, they want a million dollars out of that. And he smiled very quietly. And he said, just tell them yes. He said, they do this all the time. I said, but it's not true. He said, just do it. So I went back and I told him, yeah, we'll do it for a million dollars less. And then it cost exactly what I said it was going to cost. (laughs) <laughs> and that's what they teach you to do. Yeah. <laughs> They'd be
0: happy with like a million dollars over, I think, given the experience on the last. year.
3: Well, you know, when I when I finished the film, and I think I I could be wrong if memory serves. I think it was, I think the original budget was somewhere in the neighborhood of twelve, and I think actually I think I came in between twelve and thirteen. And um, when I finished it, I got called up to the administration building. And um, Jeff Katzenberg, who was still there at the time, got up from his desk and came around, and I'll never forget this, and stuck his hand out to me, and he said, shook it and he said, you did a heroic job on that film. <laughs> his words, not mine. Fantastic. Uh, so yeah, well,
1: think, they must have been pretty happy. As, I mean, compared to motion picture, it was very profitable because of obviously you managed to keep that budget, uh, right. low kind of thing, and obviously it, it made, uh, I can't quite remember, I think it's something like eight times its budget. But it
3: Yes, uh, you know, it was. I was very proud because I was proud of what it was and I was proud that I had done it as I said I would. Um, that leads me to something um, I don't know if you were going to inquire about but I've, a, a number of people have asked me recently why I never stayed on to do more.
1: Yeah, that that is interesting. I, I've been wondering that. Is because obviously they continued on the original series films, and like you say, they were obviously very happy with what you did. So I presume kind of the, it was open for you to return. Or
3: well, as a matter of fact, once again, I was called up into the administration building, and they said um, we'd like you to stay on and do more Star Trek's. And I paused, and I said, "Well, I, I need to think about that." And um, they, they said, well, you know, what's your concern? And I said, well, uh, I said, what about Harv Bennett? And they said, not my words, their words, they said, we want him doing television. Oh, and that's, so, nice. see, that's what he was originally brought on board to do. And this was, in fact, produced through the television division, not the feature division.
0: Oh, yeah, so it's like it's strange to think of like this is a TV movie because it has none of that feel at all and it
3: was a lot <laughs> of television talent even behind the camera wasn't it that well, was, the, there was the, uh, well uh, Robert uh, Game Resher who, who I chose as a cinematographer had done some movies for television but he had also done some important films for I believe uh, Elia Kazan uh, and I'd have to check his credits again. Uh, so there were uh, a number of people who came, who crossed, both, crossed the line. They did both. Um, the editor was my choice, and he used to be on staff at my commercial production company. Uh, so so there were some people brought in like that. But the, the issue was, uh, you know, would I stay on? And uh, I went home that night, and I thought long and hard. And I came back, and I made one of the two... Uh, most profoundly uh, erroneous professional decisions I've ever made. Uh, excuse me, make that three. Okay. Uh, and that was and that was I turned it down. And that was partly done out, out of naivete, still not understanding that having a base at a major studio uh, with a parking place and your name on a building uh, is very important. And, but the major driving force at all candor was that Harv had brought me aboard. Harv yep. and I had gone to UCLA together and he had offered me a position uh, years previous when he was uh, head of, I think, uh, the American Broadcasting Company's Western uh, offices. And he wanted me to be director of new program development. And uh, I, I turned it down because I had just raised the money to begin my own commercial production company, and I wanted to be my own boss. And um, so I, I ruminated, and I said, you know, even though Harv and I had serious differences uh, during the course, which erupted somewhat during towards the end, um, I couldn't bring myself to kick out the man who had brought me in. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it was a moral decision I made, and I lived with it. I turned it down otherwise I would have gone on who knows how long I would have been there
1: is it something you regret uh, t- turning those down now or
3: oh I think as I as I've aged I think probably I was a bit too moral uh, because I understand now that that's just the way the business is mm-hmm. and uh, the, the moral the word moral isn't in the uppercase in fact, it's not even in lowercase. <laughs> it's in a self-destructing font of some kind that just disappears. Um, yeah, I, I probably should have stayed on. Uh, that that was the second of my, uh, as I said, my profound errors of judgment.
1: Have you seen the films that they made afterwards? No. Oh, you haven't? Okay. Nope. That, that, that's, that's interesting. Was that a... A specific decision by yourself that you didn't want to really see what kind of could have been, or and then imagine how you would have done things.
3: No, uh, the, the truth of the matter was I just didn't care anymore.
1: <laughs> that's, uh, that's fair enough.
3: No, no I truly, I mean, I, I uh, I, I just, you know, I feel as though I, you know, that old cliche, I'd been there and I'd done that, and I didn't, I just, I simply wasn't curious. My mind was focused elsewhere. On other kinds of things, and um, I simply had no desire to see it, I so I never did. It's not—it's not escaped your attention, I
0: think, that um, they did continue using a lot of the template that you set up. Certainly, the uniforms you commissioned, the redesign <laughs> from Bob Fletcher, like they are still using them today pretty much, aren't they?
3: <laughs> yes, and you know, uh, which amused me. I, I you know, I'd, I'd see some photographs or publicity stills or things, and, uh, and I'd see that. I go, yeah, 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 that, that was my idea. <laughs> Um, but the um, – and Bob – by the way, I'm, I'm digressing. But Bob Fletcher was an incredible man and talent. Uh, I loved working with him. He was so inventive, so tasteful, and he got it right away. I mean, he really – He really knew how... Did did you know the story about the dye tests?
0: Yeah, you tried to, like, redo the original motion picture... Well, the motion picture costumes to see if they could be salvaged in some way, shape, or form. But it was... Was it just the the actual kind of, like, the baby jumpsuit almost of them that just never looked good? No matter what you did with it.
3: You know, I always thought they looked like onesies.
0: (laughs) Yeah, 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 they do, yeah. I mean... well, they would like pyjamas in the first one. It's just that very exactly. muted colour tone. It just felt like they are all going off the bed.
3: Right, exactly. <laughs> and, 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 but um, so, so the idea to, to... I wanted to use them in some... I wanted to save money. So I said, OK, how much of this can we salvage? So I asked Bob Fletcher to do dye tests on the fabrics to see what other colours we could make
0: them. <laughs> do you still have them knocking about, Bob? The costumes, the dye tests?
3: No, you know, I think I gave them away. I oh, was
0: just
1: wondering if you use them as pajamas or something like that. <laughs>
3: <No>. <laughs> um, I, the only one—the only one of my fit me would be Pavlov. I think. I think otherwise, <laughs> everyone's too large. Uh, no, I, I gave this away, but uh, it was a result of those diet tests. that we—we actually did. He did recut the trap. The trousers were from that original material. Yeah. The tunics were all uh, made. Oh mate, the are, Yeah, that's
0: incredible. But um, well, we like the the, the the away team suits as well, where they go across to regular one. Have always been some of my favourite uh Starfleet uniforms. I mean, think it's the um, the one with the big collar at the back. It's it's fantastic.
3: Oh, wait, wait a minute! Oh, forgive me. Which which suit is that?
0: It's the it's the kind of big jackets that Kirk and um, and some of the other oh, away team so members the, yeah, wear.
3: Yes, like the car coat. Yes, yes. That's right, yeah, uh, yeah uh that uh, that was pure Bob Fletcher. I had nothing to do with, with that. It just spun off from the basic uh, concept of the costume and by the way, I have to give Nick credit here too uh, uh Nick Meyer uh because um, I felt that the, the uniforms should be more militaristic now that was an intuitive thing uh not I wasn't being slavish to some. Star Trek concept, but it was something I just felt, and that probably stemmed out of the fact that I served both in the U.S. Marines and in our Air Force as an officer, so I have a bit of a military background, yeah. and now, so some part of me said, no, nah, we've got to have, if I were running this ship, they would look, they would wear uniforms, <laughs> yeah. but it was Nick who said, let's do Prisoner of Zenda, or, and I said, well, do you want Prisoner of Zenda, or do you want the Student Prince? And so we talked about that a bit. And then Bob Fletcher took it from there. Um, and, and the um, the one thing that Bob Fletcher did originally that didn't work for me is that the, the tunics had high collars, a fixed uh, firm, somewhat high collars, very much in the uh, uh, European uh, tradition. And... Um, I said, you know, I, I don't like that. That's that's too much like an old, old MGM musical. I said, let's let's do something else. I said, I want. How about if we do turtlenecks? And he said, I have a machine. They don't even make it anymore. And I believe it was called. It made something called contrapunto, something like that, and it gives that pleated effect along the neck around the neck. And when he showed me an example, I said, that's it. And that's what we did.
2: Amazing.
1: Um, you mentioned earlier, Bob, that you and Harv clashed a bit towards the end of production um, over some certain aspects of the film. I was just wondering if you could tell us if it's okay, like what, what those aspects were.
3: I don't mind. Um, uh, I, was, I was brought in, Harv, Harv was uh, brought into Paramount to do three things. He was brought in to do a, a movie for television called A Woman Called Golda. Which was about Gold in My Ear. Mm-hmm. And it's, it was made and it, it starred Ingrid Bergman. It was a fine piece of work. He also was in, uh, com- see, what was the other? Oh, there was a television series for NBC uh, that they wanted to revive, and it was called The Powers of uh, Matthew S- David Starr. But there was some conflict with the name because there's a comic strip, David Starr, so I said, well, I said, use my son's first name. So they changed <laughs> it to the, no, truly, the powers of Matthew Starr. And so he was involved in those two things, and I was hired to produce this film. Uh, in reality, what happened was that Harv worked with the writers. He would select the writers to work on the script, and I would participate at all the meetings with my own notes, but we were doing it together with these writers. I didn't, now mind you, I came from the commercial world, so I didn't have Harv's experience in working with television writers. Uh, So it seemed, we seemed to be having a revolving door of television writers and then Harv would work on the script himself and the drafts were just unacceptable, in my view. So this continued for a while and I was really somewhat panicked because the studio advanced the release date on us and we didn't have a script to shoot <laughs> and uh I, in the meanwhile i was i was conceptualizing with mike minor my art director the visual effects and all those things and trying to work plug them in almost backwards to a script that didn't exist and it was very difficult and it changed every day it was very intense Anyway, as we progressed, I, I was looking for, obviously, looking for a director. This is a long answer to your question. Uh, I was looking for a director, and I had a list of, I'd drawn up a list of about 30 or 30 plus directors. And we were facing an impending Directors Guild strike here in the United States. Uh, but nonetheless, I had a list, of some of which were American, some of whom were British. Uh, because I loved a lot of the work that the the Brits were doing, you fellows were doing
1: Uh, Thank thank you (laughs) we were of course responsible
3: (laughs) I mean truly Um, and as it turned out I would approach people and either they didn't want to do Star Trek, they didn't want to do a sequel, they didn't want to do science fiction or they weren't available and I couldn't believe it, I was was panicked and my assistant Deborah Aracallion Suggested Nick Meyer, and I knew of his work. I knew the Seven Percent Solution, and I knew that with the film I believe he directed was Time After Time, if I'm right. Yeah. And uh, I I contacted him. I sent him a script. I went and met with him, and I thought this guy gets it because I said to him, Nick, this is a space opera, and he said, I got it. And we talked at great length. And so then I went to Harv and I told him, okay, I found, this, I found this director and I think he'd be perfect. So he said, well, I want to meet him. So we went over to Nick's house and when we came out of the meeting. We were walking towards our car. Harv turned to me and he said, uh, I don't think we should use him. And I said, what? Well, why? He said, he's going to be trouble. And I said, uh, I can handle it. Anyway, we had a disagreement about that. And then, of course, once Nick was aboard, and Nick did his uncredited, total rewrite, which saved the script, saved the film, uh, and made it into what it is. Uh, of course, then Harv became a huge fan. <laughs> that was just the beginning. As time went on, uh, it was one of those situations where uh, I did all the work, and uh, Harv wanted to take all the meetings. And I deeply resented that. Uh, so it was uh, fundamentally that uh, I produced the film, and Harve fumbled around with a script until Nick came aboard, and otherwise he was he was off doing a woman called Golda, and the television series about Matthew Starr
1: Yeah, you were very much. It sounds like you were very much on the ground floor, kind of you know, and really day to day on the set, yeah, making yeah. things happen.
3: Yeah. Every, 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 in every way, because much of the work was done before Nick ever came aboard, before we had any director. Uh, so as a director, I, I, I hired all the crew. I approved uh, the selection of the designs. We were, we were designing sets. And I was doing all of that. And I was conceptualizing all the, all the visual effects along with Mike Miner. Um, and uh, you know, I was putting the whole production together and doing the budget. So, um, yeah, uh, and I was on the set every day, with the exception of the days when I had to go to, up to ILM. I must get back to that too for you, yeah. um, where I would review the work once a week. And I devised a system in working with them that they had not done before. Uh, and then again, this came out of my commercial background. Um, knowing how this, how visual effects can spin out of control, or the costs thereof, mm-hmm. uh, based on past their previous, previous experience. And knowing the, the kinds of constraints that I can bring to bear based on my commercial experience, I devised a form and the form literally laid out and it had to be submitted once a week from ILM to me. And it laid out the shots we were, go, were going to do, the shots they were working on, the status of each shot, and where we stood on the budget. So every week we had discussions, and I kept I kept such a tight hold on that that if we dropped a shot, for example, which we sometimes did, but I added something else. I'd say, okay, we've dropped this one. That saves me eight thousand dollars. How much is this one going to cost? And we would negotiate back and forth. That's why my original visual effects budget was three million dollars, and that's what it cost. Yeah
1: you were involved in the casting as well weren't you Bob yes in yes. terms of that just one thing that I was just intrigued by was um, with uh, Ricardo Montalban who obviously played Khan obviously he was coming back from the TV show um, he, right. he featured in an episode of the television show um, right. being that obviously there's such a big gap between there was there ever a consideration for recasting or was it always going to be him again
3: uh, here I have to give hard credit Okay. That was that was Harv's idea, and uh, there was no problem whatsoever. Uh, Ricardo was delighted to do it. Uh, I can't recall what we paid. I, I mean, it's, it's been about thirty years, <laughs> so uh, I can't recall what we paid him. But whatever it was, he had ten days with us, and um, he was the consummate professional. So no, there was no there was no conflict. Ten days is all he was on set. Uh, ten, 10 days of shooting.
0: Wow! It wow! It's it amazing.
3: amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we we planned it very very carefully. Uh, and <laughs> there's a little sidebar to this. Um, what his first first shot that Nick had him had him do was a master shot in a medium close up, where he is in the on the sand planet, surrounded by his cohorts, and he and he's already captured uh, uh, Walter Koenig, and. Um, Oh, uh, 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 the other actor Paul, uh, Paul Winfield Paul Winfield, yeah. Paul Winfield. and um, he delivers it so he, he shot this master and he ran, ran about a full load so it was almost nine minutes and he did it flawlessly I mean it was so perfect there was no reason for another take and uh, so I noticed that the next day when Bill Shatner and uh and um, my friend Mr. Spot showed up. Suddenly, they were a little sharper on the set. (laughs) <laughs> They've got their thoughts learned. You know, it's like playing with a double A tennis player.
2: Yeah, so raising it, the game.
3: Mm. It, it raised the game. It raised the bar. Exactly. It was very. Fun. It's not that the guys weren't professional, <laughs> but you know, they'd been there, they'd done that, and they were just a little bit loose with it, which it was okay because it was still they were yeah, they were they were delivering good performances certainly. But after Ricardo, it's as though it's as though someone just. A little, little fire under them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I wonder actually what order. The, there's the wonderful scenes where w- William Shatner is acting against the, the view screen and he's having a conversation with Khan, which would have been, I assume, pre recorded. Was Mac- Ricardo's sides done first so that they could be played back so for, for Bill to act against?
3: I'm afraid I can't recall that. I just can't. It's, I can't recall that at all. Because it's, it's, but, it's very
0: interesting that this film doesn't ever have a scene where they're in the same room together, isn't it? So I was wondering it, how they got this great interplay because it, it really comes the across. chemistry, yeah. Uh, the yeah. chemistry between the two oh. adversaries.
1: It, is no, that something uh, that was ever thought about? Um, but the fact that they, they don't come physically face-to-face in the film?
3: No. To be candid... Oh, okay. was, that's interesting. Both, both of them are such consummate actors that they can, they literally can pull off anything. Uh, I mean, you know, Shatner is capable of such a wide range of things. You see, I've seen him play, you know, deep, disturbing drama, and then at the same time, you, you know, I saw him in Boston Legal, the television series. Yeah. I mean, he has a great comedic sense. So, uh, the, no, good actors can, can really, based on my limited experience, can really pull it off. And, of course, Ricardo, I mean, he could talk to a telephone booth and it wouldn't matter.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they certainly did um, pull it off here. I mean, talking about Bill Shatner, uh, as you mentioned that you were, of course, responsible for his big entrance in this film. Yes. <laughs> it yeah. was a brilliant moment.
3: Well, you know, it, it was obvious, you know, Bill, Bill is a star and Bill wants to be, you know, treated like a star. So, so I can't remember how the original, the original script had an engine, but I said, I was on the set and I said to Nick and to Dane Rescher, I said, you know, this entrance has to be like the second coming. I said, that's what we have to do. And so I said, you know, when the, when the smoke is there, and that's when I told them to, uh, to put this, this, you know, a b- brute, a big 5,000 watt lamp directly behind him and with the smoke and everything, that when those doors opened, there would be fingers of light that emanated from his, from his body and from his movements. That day they shot it, I was up north at ILM. And when I came back, they hadn't shot it that way. They shot with the lamp off to the side, and it and it didn't work. And so, um, you know, Mick and I had a little discussion about that. And I said, well, it has to be redone. And that's it. And we redid it. And that's what's on the screen now.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a really iconic entrance for that character, <laughs> hugely. I mean, we we did an episode on the Wrath of Khan, um, and we talked about that, um, in the episode being a really stand out moment because I mean, it's a bigger introduction than he actually ha- gets in motion picture. Um, well,
3: who, who else? Who else gets an entrance like that? <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, well deserved, yeah, and it's so Kirk like as well. It's great. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. certainly.
3: I was wondering, uh,
0: with Nick's uh, much heralded kind of like last minute rewrite, I think um, it was a lot to do with actually getting the opinions of the principal cast. I'm, I've heard from various uh, sources that he actually invited their suggestions and they even realized they knew their characters so well that they were quite involved in sort of coming up with some of their own, own lines and stuff like that.
3: That's true. That's true. And it was appropriate because uh, Nick wasn't that close to Star Trek either. Mm. And it was, it was just as I you know, face production on a major studio, uh, I, I, I asked a lot of questions and I interviewed the uh, prisoners in separate cells to get the information that I wanted. <laughs> And and Nick did the same thing. And that was absolutely appropriate and what a you know, what a top professional writer would do when working with pre established and heavily entrenched characters. It's
0: the great way to approach a sequel, I think. You know, if you are coming on as a fresh face, you kind of really need to well trust in them that they know their characters that they've developed.
3: Right, exactly. And but, Nick was uh, Nick was very wise, and he did a great job, and he listened carefully. And sometimes the the, uh, the actors would have ideas or, or suggestions about something that Nick would refute, but he refuted it with reason, and they bought it. And in, in the end, both, I must say, and at at, I'll never forget this, at the wrap at party, both uh, uh, Bill, you know, and uh, Leonard took me aside and said that they had never had such a happy experience and they couldn't wait to do the next one
1: Well that's an interesting uh, point there isn't it because obviously in Roth of Khan we see the death of Spock um, but obviously he returned for search of Spock is it true that Leonard Nimoy wanted uh, to leave the franchise and then because of his experience on Roth of Khan changed his mind and was like actually I'm going to stay on?
3: Yes. Uh, the story, the true story uh, behind all this, no matter what you read, uh, because I was there in the room, uh, was that Leonard didn't want to do any more Star Trek. Now, whether that was a negotiating ploy on his part, because aside from being a fine actor, Leonard is an ext- was an extremely intelligent man. And uh, so he declined. He didn't want to do it. And it was then, it was Harve's idea who said, well, why don't we kill him off? And he approached Leonard with it. In fact, we both did. We had lunch. As I recall, we had lunch with Leonard. And uh, Leonard said, hmm, okay, I, I, I can get behind that. And the, the line was, Leonard didn't want to put the ears on again. That's what he told me. <laughs> <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't want to. He was tired of putting it on the ears. That's what he said. And... Um, so we agreed that uh, we're going to come off. Well, uh, despite our security, or what we thought passed for security, and numbered scripts and all that sort of stuff, of course, you know, eventually the word got out. And that's a whole other story I don't even want to address. So the Fuhrer was so great over this that I received, I received a, uh, a telephone call from... Um, an unknown voice on my answering machine at my home and the voice said if you kill Spock we're going to kill you Mm. and I had to have enhanced security today. I had to have enhanced security around my home because I, <laughs> I had two little children. And I thought, you know, so, so some of these people want to get their acts together. I mean, this is a little extreme. Well, anyway, so it went on like that. And uh, and the, uh, the the ultimate idea was, well, and I think I suggested this. I said, look, this is science fiction in many ways. In science fiction, we can do anything. So why don't we intimate that there's a possibility that he could come back. And uh, Harv sold that idea, and I sold the idea. Then I designed that last, uh, I storyboarded myself, that last sequence on the Genesis planet. Mm, And then I went up to ILM and had them put together my crew, and then I directed the, the thing in Golden Gate Park and we added uh, we wrapped trees with vines and we put in extra plants and i wanted the i wanted the smoke machine and, and the and the fans and all that, that whole thing so that was great fun actually so do that's you, um, how we, do you, you remember,
2: do you remember at which point that how soon after wrap did Leonard change his mind was it like at that point? Or did he have to see the film first and be like, you know what, I'm, I'm down to come back already? Because, I mean, Search for Spot came out only two years later, didn't it? So it was quite a quick turnaround for the next one.
3: Well, that's because we were so successful with this one uh, that the studio said, to get going. Uh, you know, I, I, I think Leonard was very, he was very happy going into the film because he felt that, you know, he was getting what he wanted and so on. And then when the furor arose... Uh, he did 180. Uh, he didn't. I guess he did, he wasn't aware or, or he didn't anticipate the uh, the uh, the kind of negative press and negative response from the fans that this would engender. And um, I think he I think he changed his tune, but really changed his tune once they began to see what we were shooting and how it was turning out. And then, as I say, at, at the end. He was, he was on board for as many as we wanted to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny you should uh, quote him, um, Bob, and say he didn't want to put the ears back on. I can actually relate to that as I actually funny enough recently acted in a star trek fan film where i played a romulan who have the same ears as the vulcans uh, that he played so you do have to sit in that makeup chair for quite a long time and it is hellish you're picking bits out of your ear of makeup prospect for the next two days believe me so I, I can relate
3: well i think i think he might have been it at two levels one practically, as you just expressed it, <laughs> and the other more symbolically, as he just simply didn't want to be around anymore on this. Just didn't want to do any more of these. Um, I Didn't want to play that character any further.
0: Well, like, I've got a quite a personal relationship with this, film because I, it was the first one I ever saw, and it was actually almost the first introduction to Star Trek I actually uh, experienced, and it kind of what started me to sort of enjoy the show and uh, and the rest of it. But I think it's... I think one of the main things was it was scary as a child watching this film. I remember the eels uh, and the the earworms being particularly for a young lad, like (laughs) quite terrifying. And I think that you also had in
3: that design. Uh, Yes. Uh, What happened there was the script, as we had it, uh, originally called for some sort of a creature to attach itself to the neck of the uh, 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 Chekhov. And uh, I said, guys, I said, this is, this is the trouble with tribbles. I mean, it's straight out of a, a TV show. You've done this before. And they said, they looked at me and they said, well, you know, you're, okay, you're such a smart guy. You figure it out. <laughs> and Literally. So I said, okay, I will. So the next morning, I, was, uh, I went out to collect my morning newspaper, and I'm walking out the, my front door and along the pathway, and there crawling across was a slug. And I, and I hate those things. They're just so slimy and just, uh, you know, and I, I looked at it and I said, hmm, I thought to myself, what if a miniature, what if a baby would go into the ear? I don't know where this came from, but that's this is the true story. It would climb into the ear and then when it grew it it attached itself to the cerebral cortex, And that went on and on and on. So I came back to the studio and I called up our technical advisor at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And I said, is this feasible? And he said, absolutely. He said, there's a thing called the earwig. And I said, okay. So we stretched it a bit. And so, yeah, and so I, we everybody came on board with that. I then went up to ILM and sat down with Ken Ralston, who was one of my two supervisors up there, and did about, I don't know, 12 or 13 drawings of different, and we decided it would be a mother who would be the host, and the babies who would be the initial insertees. And um, so that's what we did, and I have to tell you, it was more fun, not only conceiving of it, but rendering it and bringing it on the screen. And I loved sitting in the theatres. I remember people cringing. And I remember the couple sitting next to me, a woman burying her face in her hands, <laughs> 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 saying, oh, that's the grossest thing I have ever seen. And I did an air pump, and I said, yes,
0: this is exactly, <laughs> exactly, this the air is
3: spot. exactly what i would hoped for.
0: It was too hot so, for the yeah. British censors, even, like uh, they had to cut some of that back.
3: Uh no we,
0: i think think in the cinema it was a little bit they trimmed a little bit of that stuff but
1: uh, we we, are, we all grew up on the uncut version so we we know the full effect of the eels yeah well, it was 15 certificate over here bob and like that's the oh, highest rated oh, star trek
3: oh, oh, oh i didn't realize that i didn't realize that well interesting uh, <laughs> now because no, um, the version we did of course i milked it for all it was worth <laughs>
1: Yeah, so to young kids in the video shop, your film was the cool Star Trek film because it was the higher rating. Um, we just wanted to ask you one more thing before. We want to discuss other aspects of your career as well, to be honest with you, but there's um, one more thing I wanted to ask about, Roth of Khan, was obviously last year, uh, they brought out a kind of remastered Blu-ray director's cut version of the film, which you actually appeared on one of the um, uh, featurettes on the Blu-ray for. Um, right. did, you, did you see the director's cut? Um, and did, what did you think of it, the changes and well, such?
3: It's, it's, it's fine and Nick and I talked about it and it's the, the changes were so minor uh, as I remember primarily it had to do with the young man in the engine room who had been killed uh, and, or treated and so on and I remember that we had locked some of that out uh, for some ridiculous reason and so Nick put that back in but even he considered that uh, what he put back in to be minor.
1: Okay cool. Um we wanted to talk about uh other aspects of your career as well. There's there's a couple of things um that I've picked out. Uh, one of which is uh I actually watched the Picasso Summer recently. Oh um, my god. Oh and, my god. <laughs> <laughs> uh which of course uh you do, now I've I've read that you came on late in the day to kind of take over this film. How did you come involved in that?
3: Uh my company was hired to do the post-production for the first, I hesitate to use his name, Bill Cosby special on NBC. And uh, this is because, uh, again, another friend of mine uh, was uh, part of the company that uh, managed Bill Cosby. And uh, they asked us to produce the the whole thing that led up to the live segment, which took place at NBC. So you transitioned from the part we would film to the to the live segment, and it was about 15 minutes. So uh, I put, you know, we had a crew together. I ended up directing that in, in South Philadelphia with Cosby, and um, and it was very successful. Everybody was very happy, and the show was very successful. And then when Picasso Summer came around, my Friend again, the producer came to me and said, uh, "You know, I'd like you to be involved in this, and we'd like you to do all the post-production, or have your company do it, and I'd like you to produce any of the additional photography that we have to do in the United States." So I said, "Sure." Uh, I, you know, I, I'm hesitating here because it sounds like I, I have only negative things to say about some people, but I have to say it. So I was asked to, to go and meet with, um, with the producer and with Serge Bourguignon before anything was done at the Bel Air Hotel. And uh, we sat, we talked for about an hour. And when we exited, my producer friend turned to me, and said, what do you think? And I said, I think you're asking for trouble. And he said, why? And I said, just call it intuition. I think you're gonna get yourself into trouble with this guy. And he said, oh, no, 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 he did this. He did Sundays in Savelle and so on. I said, you ask my opinion, that's it. I'll do whatever you want. Well, the long and the short of it was they went over, they shot shot a film. I don't know what it was and brought it back. And Serge worked for probably six weeks in my editing facility. And it was undeliverable. Uh, The film made no sense. And it was terrible and so the producers were in a bind and Cosby's company was in a bind so at that point they decided that since they had a contract to deliver it to uh, i think it was warner's seven arts uh they said okay we're going to go back and reshoot it and they said would you direct it and i said yep uh, and i thought to myself why not um and so they they hired a writer to work on the script who was a television writer and it was absolutely the wrong choice and it, they, they kept making a lot of what I considered just self-destructive choices except for hiring me of course
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and um, at, at a certain point I almost walked away from it uh, and then I thought to myself well Bob you have a choice you can go to the south of France for two months and direct Albert Finney and Yvette Mimeo and be paid an obscene amount of money or you can turn it down. So I said, I'm going to go and take the obscene amount of money and go to the south of France. So that's what I did. So I, I took the script as bad as it was and tried to make something out of it. But at its core, the problem was that there was no real reason to make the film. This was this was based on a short story by Ray Bradbury that didn't have sufficient weight uh, to to build a, a film around it, and the excuse, and it's the excuse that they were going to beat Picasso, which was a lie by the way, uh, and do the animation uh, was at, at best something I not I would I would never have done. Um, so I went and I did it. The problem was that uh, (laughs) the problem was I was was doing and I and I hired Vilmos Zygmunt to be my director of cinematography at that time Vilmos was doing commercials and he had only recently arrived in our in the America from Hungary and um, and I loved uh, Willie and uh, so we were I said to myself and to him I said Willie the only thing we can do with this film is that we have two gorgeous people in this gorgeous scenery We're going to have a beautiful score, I know, from Michelle Legrand, because I know that they had approached him. I said, let's just make this the most beautiful film we can, and at least it'll be pleasant and won't offend anybody, because I knew there was no story here. There was no no core to anything here that really mattered to an audience, in my opinion. So uh, we're we're about three weeks into shooting, and it's going very well. Uh, I, I have to say that working with Albert Finney was one of the great joys of my life Uh, not only is he a consummate gentleman and an amazing actor but he was just how can i describe it there was there was simply no facade there was no falseness there was no anything It it was all about as i like to say how well can we do this and we got along very very well and um, anyway so we're shooting along and one day Albert and I are having lunch at Le Colum d'Or a restaurant in Saint-Paul-de-Vance and um, there's this very attractive woman at the next table and uh, she's having lunch with her daughter and it turns out that's Anouk Me from a man and a woman I don't know if you recall that film uh, uh,
1: no I don't think so but go on you, well, you should you should see
3: it. It we was. We will was check a, it out,
1: definitely, on your a, recommendation.
3: A, a it's, it was a breakthrough film for its time, and it's t- terrific. Anyway, she was just lovely. So one thing led to another. Next thing you know, Anouk and Albert and I are having lunch together. And the next thing you know, Albert and Anouk are having lunch and dinner together. And then Albert and Anouk are seeing each other uh, otherwise. So... The bottom line was Albert didn't want to play a movie actor anymore. He wanted to go and play with, with a duke. <laughs> so um, he used some clause in his uh, contract to uh, leave the film. And I'll never forget the last night uh, we were shooting in an estate in saint jean Cap And this, this, this estate was so vast that the uh, catering service had set up in the garage, which had room for 12 vehicles, and we're sitting there. So on one side of the table is Albert Finney and, the, and, and Anouk and me. On the other side of the table is my wife and myself. My wife starts to cry because she's a very sensitive, lovely lady. And um, because the picture was over and so on. And so Anouk is comforting her and so on. And, uh, and Albert, I said, I said, I said, to him, I said Albert, I said, how can, you, how can you do this? How can you leave the picture? And he said, oh, it's not about you, Bob. And I said, well, but, Albert, it is about me because it makes me almost a feature director. And he said, "Bobby he said, it's really not about you. I love working with you. His line, but I have to teach these boys a lesson, meaning the producers. So I there's very little I can do. So we, we took the film that I had shot um, and we went back to the United States and then we shot again using a double for Albert, but we had Yvette, and we shot and filled in a lot of places, and I did a complete reconstruction of the film that bears no resemblance whatsoever to the original cut. Uh, some of the bits of, uh, of of dream sequence, or some of the bits of, of uh, when a search shot became part of a dream sequence.
1: Animation I mean, and such. Uh,
3: no, not the animation, oh. even some of the live action. Uh, but but the, no, the animation was kind of uh, often doing its own thing. Uh, yes. with Wes Hershenson. Um Anyway, so that's in a nutshell, sort of sort of the story. I mean, uh, so uh, Bill Dornish, who also cut Star Trek for me, uh, cut this for me, and at one point we looked at each other in a sort of a <laughs> immodest way and said, you know. If we ever could show this to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and get up and explain each thing that we did, we'd both get Academy Awards, <laughs> because it was such an extraordinary reconstruction of material that made no sense whatsoever into something that almost made sense. Yeah.
1: Well, as you say, um, Bobby, it had—it's got some. Gorgeous scenery and cinematography in it, certainly. And like um, working with Albert Finney, as you say, must have been an amazing experience. And just to throw a recommendation back to you, as you recommended a movie to us one there, have you seen Saturday Night and Sunday Morning?
3: Oh, sure. When it first came out.
1: Yeah, uh, what a film. Years,
3: years ago. I haven't seen it recently. I'll look at it again.
1: Yeah, no, it's yeah, really, really good, fantastic. a fantastic performance. We actually, uh, Matt and I, studied it in uh, college. Yeah. Uh, cool. Yeah, it's a great, great performance there. Um, another film I wanted to ask about your involvement in, because I'm actually a huge Sylvester Sloan fan, is Assassins. Oh,
3: yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, well, gee, where do we get on that? Dick Donner, who I still think is one of the greatest directors we've ever had. Uh, I think I think Goonies. I think uh, the, his take on Superman, mm. which set the, set the, the the pattern for for you know comic book heroes. Uh, you know for his sensitivity, uh, he did a film called Inside Moves, which is just a lovely, lovely personal film, um, and Lethal Weapons, which are huge commercial successes. Um, I, I, he and I have been friends. For uh, since um, for about sixty years, and, um, and this I'll tell you the truth, uh, I was approaching retirement from the directors' guild perspective, and in order to qualify for the, <laughs> I don't know if you find this interesting, but in order to qualify for continued medical insurance, you had to have worked within a certain period near, close to your retirement. And I wasn't directing. I was developing other projects and so on and so forth, but I wasn't directing. So I called Dick and I said, here's the problem. He said, no problem. He says, I'd like you to do direct all my second unit for Assassins. I said, will you do it? I said, of course I'll do it. So that was that. And that's why I did it.
1: <laughs> and how was that experience? I mean, what, what kind of, do you remember kind of what sequences you had involvement in shooting?
3: Every bit of the action, all the chases and the fights and the cars flipping over wow. and the stuff. And it, was, and it was something, to be candid, I'd never done in commercials. And uh, the, my second unit crew had 140 crew members. I had five cameras. I had two helicopters. And I had unlimited access to the uh, freeways in Seattle. <laughs> and I mean it was I, I, I felt I mean talk about a power trip because,
2: <laughs> that's
0: all the fun I stuff no, yeah, it, unless you think Dick Donovan might so much, want to do those bits himself I mean, he really like you know like gave you like the, the, the most what sounds like the most fun parts to do yeah
3: no you know what it's funny Dick, Dick doesn't really like doing that stuff it's really interesting you know he's really a people guy. He's, he has a, an incredible sense of humor, an incredible amount of sensitivity, and he loves actors, and he loves working with them, but this kind of stuff is easy. He, 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 I mean, he'd do it if he had to, but he doesn't really like it. So um, I didn't mind because it was a high for me. I would never done it before, and uh, I remember once after the first shot, we had to flip a police car, and I looked at the footage, and I said, oh, God, that didn't work. That doesn't look right. And I, I was so embarrassed. I went to Dick, and I said, Dick, uh, you know, the shot didn't work. What shall I do? He says, do it again. Get another police car. I said, oh, okay. And That's the way it was. Whatever you wanted, that's what you got.
0: It's amazing to have that unlimited resource of like, mid-90s like, Warner Brothers getting like, you know, money. Just to, they, they just do it again and again because that it was right.
3: Right. Forgive me for jumping back just a moment, but the film you haven't mentioned about Albert, of course, is one of my favourites, is Tom Jones.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, no, tell us more. Well, that's well I
3: mean, have you seen it? I think you won the Academy Award for it.
0: Yeah it's, yeah, it's not very well available these days. I think that's the trouble with that one.
3: Ah, ah, I oh, think it's, it,
0: it did win Best Picture, but it's one of the few that kind of seems to have slipped through the net. Mm-hmm. Like, being, I mean, it's due for
1: a rediscovery, I think, probably, because
3: and also true for the road that he did with Audrey Hepburn.
1: Yeah, like, I mean, I, I haven't seen either of those, I'm gonna have to chat them oh. down because oh, uh, those,
3: yeah, those are back, absolutely, absolutely wonderful, wonderful films. Yeah, they, he's they,
1: he's a brilliant, that.
3: They, they, just, they just so much charm, so much just delightful. You've got to see them. In fact, I, I had dinner with uh, Stanley Donnan uh, in London, uh, who directed uh, Two for the Road. We had a, a long talk about how he uh, planned out the parallel structure of that story. Anyway, that's a whole other issue. Um, I'm sorry, I've, I've diverged from where we were going. So. It's
1: fine. We're building a list of uh, Bob recommendations, and we're going to track them all down <laughs> after this. Believe me.
3: Uh, good, good. I hope you enjoy them. Um, uh, it's so anyway that was, sorry. Yeah, go on. No, I say so. That was pretty much the assassins I think I shot for six weeks, and um, and most of it was at night in the rain in Seattle. It was cold. <laughs>
1: How was it working with Sly?
3: I never had to work with him.
1: Oh, okay. It was, we always used doubles. Oh, so he wasn't do, getting involved in his own stunts then? <laughs>
3: no, no, no. He he, he wasn't doing a uh, uh, what's his name? Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah, he <laughs> uh, like, wasn't, wasn't a Scientologist. I don't know. <laughs>
1: um, oh. It's funny you should mention about Dick um, Donna actually not being more interested in the actors and the characters because that really comes out it, with the Lethal Weapon series in the sense because although the action is amazing, the thing that keeps you invested in those films is the characters of Riggs and Murtagh and they they're, they're so iconic.
3: Absolutely and th- that is Dick's sensibility, sensitivity and strength. I mean he he's a, he's just a master storyteller and his stuff has a humanity about it. That other other films just don't. No you know. films, you know.
0: Yeah. You want yeah. to, to be, in all that carnage to better connect with the people mm-hmm. involved in it and actually want them to kind of right. get through it. It's it's a it's a rare gift.
3: Right. Um, you know, he like most directors in Hollywood, you know, have had their good ones and their not so good ones, and there were some films he, you know, we've talked about them. He, he said he said his instinct told him not to do it. And he didn't listen to his instinct, and you know, he wasn't happy. Uh, but on, on large, by and large, if you look at the body of his work, uh, I think it's enormously impressive. I recently ran Goonies again, and I'll tell you, it, it's as good today as it was 20 plus years ago. It's a remarkable piece of work. It's
0: one of the uh, we all grew up with that that film. I think yeah. you know it's a, yeah the Spielberg, the mid eighties kind of like stable of like Gremlins and that kind yeah. of thing. We it's right. like this is our sort of era almost. So yeah, we I think we all hold Goonies as sort of amongst those.
1: Yeah, completely. Because yeah, yeah. we were all born in the mid eighties, uh, Bob. So we totally grew. Up, that would have been like a VHS and TV favorite when we yeah. were growing right. up.
3: I have to show you just one thing. I don't know if it should go public or not, but uh, when I finished uh, the visual effects at ILM, uh, they invited me and my wife to come up for uh, a preview uh, before we hit the theaters of uh, E.T. It seems that they were doing the effects for E.T. Uh, one of the, Spiel, yeah, the Spielberg pictures, the... Um, the Maybe it was Poltergeist. Maybe it was, yes, E.T., Poltergeist, and my my film at the same time. So we, so we were invited. So we go up to the theater. We go up to see the it on a Saturday morning. And then we were going to go out on a private boat, and which we did. And they had music and drinks and everything. And Spielberg and Lucas were there and all that kind of stuff. So at one point, I, I introduced myself to Spielberg. And I said, you know, Dick Donner is a great friend of mine. I said, um, you know, I'm just curious. Uh, how, how did you pick him to do? I said, why did you pick him to do Goonies? And he says, because Dick is a big kid. <laughs> and, uh, and that's really true. Dick has a youth about him, an energy and a youth even today, that's uh, very contagious and uh, really very charming.
0: Absolutely. I think uh, in some in interviews, all the, the young cast as they were then, you know, kind of kept in touch with him. And it always seems like they always kept the same yes. level of camaraderie, mm-hmm. like uh, yes. which is really nice to see, because
1: you want that. It really shines through. Well, yeah, I'm still you... hoping for Lethal Weapon 5, so...
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that's, that's interesting. I'm not allowed you know, to talk about it, but I know that Dick has an idea for it, and he and I have talked about it, and he's <laughs> asked me if I might be involved with it. Uh but I I it's way, way, way too early to to talk about it right now.
0: Wow, wow, well we certainly are keeping our fingers crossed, Yeah,
1: we're free tickets right here. (laughs) make that (laughs) with with (laughs) big breath. Pushes oh, right
3: over the edge there. Okay,
1: <laughs> and it seems the time to kind of bring it back in a way because you know you've had things like the Expendables now, which obviously Mel Gibson came into the last one for, um, and so you know that kind of older action hero vibe is is really going on at the moment. It seems like it's been long enough since the other films right. as well.
3: Yeah. and Dick, Dick, Dick has a smashing idea I wish I could share it with you just a smashing idea but it's you know there are many forces at play here and uh, you know you, you never know but I agree with you I think the timing is right I know that temperamentally I would say that everybody wants to be on board but that's about as much as I can say about it
0: well it's great to hear that you're still keeping busy Bob uh, well, I,
3: I don't stop. As a matter of fact, I've, I'm in the final uh, negotiations for a, a, a mini-series for cable, um, a 10-part thing that I uh, that I helped create, and a second one that I wrote entirely, and uh, two others that I'm still flailing around the town with. So, no, I don't. St- I, I ca- I can't stop. I've got too much
1: energy. <laughs> Can you tell us anything o- about those, Bob, or is that top secret? No,
3: I, you know, it's one of those things where you, you're having discussions with people and you're not supposed to i'm sorry but at some future date i'd be happy to i'd be happy to well yeah if if
1: all this stuff comes to fruition you'll have to come back and talk about but i mean one thing we did want to go back to is obviously i I get the the thing that you're the main thrust of your career i mean after even directing 2000 commercials before roth of khan uh, has been in the commercial side of things
3: uh, no, I did go back, you know, once, uh, what happened is when I turned down Paramount for Star Trek, I immediately sold three scripts, to, to, to one to, two to Universal and one to Tristar. And uh, so here I was, all set to produce three pictures, and it's absolutely uncanny as to what happens. Two of them were to star an actor named John Candy. Do you recall John Candy at all? I do, yeah. Very much so. Lovely, lovely guy. Great fun. We became we became friends. And uh, we actually, I believe, we were even starting to build sets in Canada. We were going to shoot abroad, or up north. And um, moving along, moving along, and John had a heart attack. And that killed two pictures for me right there.
2: This would have been like early mid 90s time, was it? That uh, no, was in the 80s. Oh, in the 80s. In right.
3: the 80s, I believe.
2: Yeah. yeah. It was, I don't know if it was common knowledge that he was ill before. Like,
0: um, so it was unknown to me and these guys, yeah.
3: So I tried to set it up at a few other places, and, you know, they say you anything. Know, but, uh, but the one, the classic one is I, I had an idea, and everyone says, How hard is it to sell a picture to a studio? And I said, It depends on the day. I walked into the president of Paramount, and I said, it was David Kirkpatrick at the time, and I said, okay, David, I said, here's the picture. It's Eddie Murphy, Ruth Gordon, my man, Godfrey. Now, I don't know if you're familiar, that goes back a long ways. A remake of a film that starred um, um, Carol Lombard and uh, William Powell. And I know the film
1: you're talking about. Yeah, it's, it's like on my list of films that I want to see. I, I know the one you're talking about.
3: It's, it's fantastic. So Eddie Murphy and Ruth Gordon. So he said, that's a great idea. Have your lawyer call me. We have a deal. So he started to work. And what I didn't know was that the studio was having a terrible time getting projects for Eddie Murphy to accept. And he was under contract to them. So and what I also didn't know was that Eddie Murphy loved Ruth Gordon and that they used to go they'd meet up in New York. Well, let's put it this way. They would drink together. (laughs) And and so I had unwittingly, you know, stumbled on something here. And I thought to myself, when I learned all this, I said that my great grandchildren will never have to worry about food. That you know that, that this will make enough money it'll you be know, such as success. said so we start working on the script and I'm working away and the script is coming along and it's going to be funny and it's this and it's that and so I, and Ruth Gordon died and so I went to Eddie Murphy and I said you know it's terribly sad and I said how about um, you know doing it with Catherine Hepburn and he said no and I said oh uh, how about Jessica Tandy no. And I went through the list, and he had his mind set and his heart set on doing it with Ruth Gordon, and that was the end of that project.
0: It was very difficult, I think, for, yeah, for uh, you to know, settle on something after Beverly Hills Cop, the first one. I think this is like the mid 80s, isn't it? So, and it sort of went on yes. for quite some time, and it ended up with the Golden Child, which I don't think you know anybody was happy with. So it's just there's a lot of procrastination almost about projects that came and went
3: for him. Well, yes, and you know, and, Eddie, and I, you know, I never got to know him well. I would have, of course, had we shot the film. But you know, he is not the first nor the last actor who is not the most perceptive at selecting the best material. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we we agree. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, anyway, uh, so anyway, so I did I did a bit, quite a bit of that, and uh, you know, and with real, you know, really viable. At one point. I and mean, I sold a miniseries to, to, um, God, to Paramount or one of the students I don't. And something else happened, and it went away. So at one point I had like four hundred million dollars worth of production under contract, none of which got made.
0: Yes, That's so, the story, the story. Of Hollywood, isn't it? It's like so often yeah. you hear that yeah. development hell and things coming so close.
3: Right. And, you know, when you have contracts, when you assign contracts in your file drawers and they still don't get made, (laughs) you you see yourself, am I doing something wrong here? Uh, So, but between all of that, um, you know, fortunately, I was very successful in the commercial world. And uh, periodically, uh, you know, people would still come to me and say, you know, would you do this large package of this and that independently? And I said, sure, I'll do it. And so um, life went on and I went on and, um, I, I, I live and I continue to live a very good life. We had a second home for 30 or 40 years in Sun Valley, Idaho. And I used to ski for four months a year and hike for four months a year. So it wasn't all too too terrible.
1: It all sounds pretty good uh, to me, Bob. But, I mean, it is interesting to hear that basically behind the scenes, you've kind of consistently had all these other kind of projects kind of bubbling under uh, the whole time, probably had involvement in things that we don't even know about, yes. like in terms yes. of yeah, because it kind of, it sounds like someone, you know, you, you've kind of just had your finger in so many pies throughout the years and tried your hand at everything
3: Well, you, you know, as an independent producer, you have to and I mean, because otherwise you're never, you can't put everything behind one or otherwise, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll never succeed. And I, I, I hate to be uh, blunt about this, but uh, I don't know how some independents survive. Because th- if I hadn't enjoyed the success I did uh, to have the um, security of, um, you know, of, uh, to be able to take care of my family and so on, I don't know that I could have persisted in the industry.
0: So even e- that's even with you kind of almost spread betting over two or three projects at a time. If you hadn't had that day-to-day commercial work, you know, right. if that was keeping you kind of your hand in, really, in, in Hollywood, you have to kind of have sort of a lot of money to speculate it, almost to play that game.
3: That's right. That's right. But so. there are any
1: commercial projects you worked on, uh, Bob, that are real favourites of yours? Because, I mean, you, you've directed and were involved in so many over the years.
3: Well, I, my favorites are all. I, I suspect older than perhaps you chaps are. <laughs> uh, uh, I think I, I did so many, but this goes back to nineteen seventy. I won the grand prize at the Venice Film Festival uh, for the best commercial worldwide. Mm, wow! Uh, it beat out about five thousand commercials, um, and I won. I won Leon uh, Golden Lions, and I won silver bears and I've love... the animals. It's. <laughs> I a whole load load I don't know, 50, 50 different awards and things. But I if I told you about them you wouldn't be you wouldn't know what they are because there, there's no way to see them. But the, the more recent stuff that I've done and that I say recent within the last couple of decades, I don't even have because there's nothing there's nothing about it that makes it that special. It was merely a, you know, work to do, did the best I could, but it wasn't anything that was uh, um, so stand out that I'd say you have gotta see this. Yeah, it was the golden
0: age of commercials, like the sixties, seventies. Yeah, we, we, we're, we're quite a bit of a show, Mad Men. Now, it's yes. so kind of like interesting to see that the TV and, and commercial division sort of grow out of print advertising, and right. so that's where the excitement is, and you know, producing you know, short films, essentially, mm-hmm. um, you know, thirty seconds or less.
3: That's where I started. Uh, when I served in the military, when I came, I had a degree in film from UCLA. And then I was commissioned as an officer in the Air Force, and I made films uh, all over Europe, Africa, and the Middle East for almost four years. And when I came back, Uh, I went through, I worked on some television series and some other things, and then ended up at Desilu Studios, uh, helping to run the commercial division. And the reason that Desilu Studios had a commercial division was because they were producing a show called General Electric Theater, I believe, or the Desilu Show, and they had a contract to do all the commercials. So we were doing the commercials for that show, as well as drawing in work from the outside. And at that point, I saw a lot of agency representatives, the producers, who dressed better than I did and knew less than I did. So I decided that I was going to be one of those guys. So I went on to the agency side and joined Foot, Footcone and Building, which at the time was about the third or fifth biggest agency, and um, eventually became uh, senior vice president. And I was um, the producer. I set up two production departments, both San Francisco and L.A., and then went on to do writing and then became a member of the management uh so i had a, i had a number of years i was six six years prior to starting my own commercial production company um to um, to learn the business and you're right those days were phenomenal i had clients that came to me from new york from london all over the place some clients after working that together for a while they had such trust, I'll never forget this that they once sent me a commercial it had one frame and it had four guys in a car, that was it and I said to the guy I said, well what is this? he said, oh it's for this car in America. and I said, yeah he said, well it's about the Baja Run and I said, oh I said, well where's the story? And he said, well tell me, what's the story? so I said, well why don't we make it Treasure Sierra Madre and instead of four guys, we make it two guys, and so on. And I went, and I developed the whole thing, and that's what we shot. Those days are long gone. <laughs> gonna, that's just not going to happen today. It's
0: far by too much by committee. You think now?
3: Well, yeah, and fewer commercials are being made, and, and everybody's more uptight, and the cost of producing them has escalated to you know, you know unbelievable heights. I mean, well, I outweigh can't, the
0: potential gains, really. Yes. Yes.
3: So, anyway, great time, learned a lot, had a great run, enjoyed it a lot. Um, But um, those days, the atmosphere has changed completely. And you have, from what I'm told, you have A and A-plus commercial directors competing for C level work. Mm. That's what I'm told.
1: Yeah, I think that's the case with a lot of of promotional stuff now, with music videos as
2: well. Uh, I think it's similar. There's like the massive high end stuff with uh, the almost like music videos, like sort of perfume ads and with models and celebrities in. And then I guess below that, it's kind of everything else to a certain degree. Yeah.
3: I, I, I'd like to share with you a, a short story that just came to me. Um, back in 1970, about late 60s through the 70s, I was shooting a lot in London. And a friend of mine said. Um, yeah, we always we had dinner together. We used to go out and drink too much and do all kinds of things. And uh, we, I, he said, Come on, I want you to meet somebody. He said, He's a great guy, a good friend of mine. And so we went I had dinner with Ridley Scott. And uh, Ridley was, at the time, just, he was just beginning. Just the very beginning, so we're, we're having laughs, we're carrying on, so on and so forth. Now we now we dissolve, and it's many many years later. I don't know how many years later, like two years ago, I found a little hand drawn caricature of me, and it's on it it says London, and it and it gets says something 1970, and I looked at it and I try to remember the evening. I remember I got it that night. That i had dinner with ridley and my friend so i contacted ridley's office in london and told them the story and i said would you mind having ridley sign this for me they said no no of course not of course of course so i send the original sketch to them in london and i wait and i wait and nothing's happening and i wait and i wait and i finally call and they're very embarrassed they said oh Ridley will send you something right away so what i got back was not my original sketch because I think they lost it, but an 8 by 11 drawing of a, a picture of myself that I sent to Ridley that showed what I looked like today with a note attached to it. And I'm looking at it as we're speaking. So I have an original Ridley Scott on my wall.
0: <laughs> oh, so, It was an original Ridley grand back in the day then. This is what a sketch you did on the night.
3: No, that was, he told me, he said he never, he didn't do that. So it must have been my, it must have been my friend Don, but nonetheless, he said,
1: You know that he started out in commercials, right?
3: I do, of course.
1: Of course. Hovis, the Hovis ad, have you seen that? I'm sorry, what? The, he directed a commercial for Hovis, which is a really famous commercial over here, but I think that's a British brand, so maybe you haven't seen
3: it no I never saw it the first one of his that I ever really knew about was 1984 you know the uh, the one for oh, Apple
1: oh Mac yeah oh right okay yeah yeah. I'll find that and send it your way like, <laughs> Rob it's, it's a really is considered like classic piece of advertising in yeah. Britain and it's for bread so uh, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> it's, something, it's something special
3: <laughs> he's uh, you know we're talking about a major talent I just you know, I, I'm in awe uh, in fact, my, my production manager, who used to work for me, left my company to go to work on Blade Runner.
1: Which so, is about uh, to return this year, of course.
3: Yes, I know. I know. I don't know. I don't know.
1: Neither do we.
2: We're all hesitant. We'll see. We've got it. our fingers it's, crossed.
3: What else can I tell you? My goodness, this has been all about me.
2: <laughs> um, I wonder, just circling back to Star Trek in a kind of fun way, um, sure. Star Trek has... Permeated pop culture so much because me coming into this podcast, I was the one who'd seen the least amount of the films, and I was picking up just once seeing how much of it I kind of knew just from seeing it referenced in other films and TV. Is there a particular famous or favourite kind of either spoof or reference to Rafik Khan in particular that you remember or that you saw in something else?
3: To be to be, to be honest, I, no, I don't. <laughs> you know, I, I simply don't follow. Anyway, if it if it comes into my purview, fine. Uh, but otherwise, I don't really pay much attention
0: too busy for that.
3: Well, yes, you know, my interests are elsewhere It's it's um, you know, I'm, I'm, it's 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 still very exciting I never I never weary of the creative process I, I sometimes exhaust myself with it But every now and then I'll sit down, you know facing the blank computer screen and then something hits me and the next thing I know the day is over and uh, you know, and I've uh, drafted something or put together something, and uh, you know, and every now and then people say, "Hey, that's really great. We'd like to do that." So that's that's good.
2: God, I need that work ethic, definitely. Yeah, I <laughs> mean, it seems like there's
1: absolutely no end in sight for you, to be honest, Bob. I mean, you don't ever want to just put your feet up like a lot of people. You just want to keep on going. Uh,
3: uh, yes and no. Uh, as I told you, I, when uh, up until recently, when we had our our second home. Uh, when there were, you know, dry periods, or when the news wasn't in my house, uh, I would uh, we go to our home in Idaho, and I had no problem whatsoever in uh, skiing, skiing the winter away and partying, and uh, in the summertime hiking up ten thousand feet to glacial lakes where no one's so no one's about. And um, no, I had no problem at all of that. But every now and then, and well, I would say now most of the time, I still have the, um, the energy and apparently the uh, uh, the wherewithal, the strength to um, still go at it. But I have to tell you at some point in time, I, of course I'm gonna give it up because as you might suspect, I'm not a young man, so uh, you my time
1: Yeah, you're certainly sounding pretty vibrant to us, Bob.
3: Well, I've got, in September 22nd,
1: I'll be 86. Wow. Well, yeah. yeah, you do, do not sound it, mate, at all. <laughs>
3: Thanks. And by the way, I'm so sorry that we had to cancel our trip, and I was looking forward to meeting you all.
1: Oh, no, of course, it's a- absolutely fine. We completely understand. All we can hope is that your lovely wife is having a speedy recovery.
3: Well, she, she's on the mend uh, we're going to try to reschedule for next year uh, there's a she was going to go on a uh, cooking tour to uh, uh, northern Italy and then meet me in London so next year I think the cooking tour is going to be in Sardinia and so I think she'll go there and then we'll be up in London so I'll, I'll certainly be in touch with you
1: Paul's just come back from Italy I mean, it's my honeymoon yeah beautiful
3: oh well, congratulations, we're, congratulations. <laughs> well, well done well done
1: if oh. you do come back next year, Bob, if you would be That's up for it, we'd love to meet you and record a, a second part.
3: Absolutely. I'd be, I'd be delighted. This, is, this has been great fun. and I, I hope you've got enough material out of it you to know, be possible. Yeah.
0: Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, be more than generous, Bob, of your time. So, yeah,
3: thank you thanks very much so for much. me. Oh, thank you. Thank you both, all of you, I should say. It was, it was my pleasure, fellas. You, you, I, guys are great, and I wish you continued success. Well, thank you again. Take care, fellas.
1: Thank you, mate. Have a great night. Bye, Cheers, man. mate.
3: Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. If
0: you enjoyed this episode of Spotlight and wish to support us, you can rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, like our Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter at SpotlightPod. You can also get in touch and
3: drop us a message directly by emailing spotlightpod at gmail.com.